Hey, just a heads up that the following content may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and is not appropriate for children. Please take care of yourself and others who may be listening with you. Welcome to the Bonus Babies Podcast, a show that has no easy answers, only hard questions. You know, the, the realization that you, this young, innocent life is coming into your life and is totally dependent on you. And it's a cute, adorable little Hispanic boy with big brown eyes and sh- a shock of black hair. And, and he looks up at you and uh, you just know that uh, he needs you. And that, that kind of s- sets the tone for the whole relationship that has lasted uh, 30 years. Because he'll always be our little Angelo, even though he's a big Angelo now with, tat- with, with tats. <laughs> This is what he posted on Facebook on Father's Day. Blessed to have one of the best male role models I could ever have hoped for. Thank you for all the guidance, those hard talks, the hard shoves, and most especially all the love you showered me with. May not have my blood, but we have the same heart. Couldn't have asked for a better dad. Can you tell me what you call the kids who you've cared for over the years? We feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses. So we call them bonus babies. I love that. This is your host, Jane Amelia Larson, and I'm Akasa, a court-appointed special advocate volunteer for youth in foster care. Yeah, I know, it's a mouthful. In the same way Akasa works, I explore all things in the foster care maze by talking to kids, parents, caregivers, attorneys, social workers, therapists, really anybody and everybody who will speak to me to keep the conversation open and the information flowing about all things CASA. Today's guest is the indestructible Howie Cohen. Howie and his wife, Carol, his beautiful wife, Carol, as he calls her, were living a nice life in Los Angeles. She came home one day and she said, they need us. So Howie and Carol became foster parents and it changed their lives forever, for the better, in ways they could never have expected. But it was often very hard and complicated and pretty tough on the family at first too. But they'd all do it again in a minute. And how he's going to tell us about that right now. All right, I'm here with Howie Cohen. May I call you Howie? Yeah, sure. How you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? I'm I'm okay. I'm glad to be uh, talking here with you. Will you tell me what your T-shirt says? I can see Hollywood. What? It says Hollywood stent man. Uh huh. And why? And it's inspired by the fact that I have eight stents in my body. Wow. <laughs> And they're keeping me alive, and they work. So uh, I thought that was cute. I'm going to give one to my cardiologist. Yeah, he'll, it's he'll actually it. a really good-looking T-shirt, and I love the tree of life in the center of it. Thank you. Is that what that is, a tree of life? It's sort of some, you know, uh, I did this online by myself, and I'm not even an art director. How about yeah, you're, that? Yeah, it's good. <laughs> I thought it looked like a heart with, you yeah, it's know, beautiful. stents in there. Okay, tell me a little bit about who you are, Howie. Well, I, I, um, I'm a Bronx boy, 
Jewish kid, grew up in the Bronx, dreamed of being in advertising, and was lucky enough to get a job at a creative agency back in the 60s. And uh, I was surrounded by creative geniuses and lucky enough to soak up their knowledge, their talent. And I I had a, a very gratifying career. Yeah, you had a really good run, didn't you? Yeah, and I had some work that's in the Clio Hall of Fame. You know, the Clios are our Oscars. Yes. Uh, the Oscars you, of advertising, right? Yeah. This is the, the Clio Hall of Fame. Oh, so uh, it's even more than just a Clio Award. It's a bigger Clio than that. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. Forgive me. Forgive me for my, for my ignorance. <laughs> you think you're talking to here. No, so uh, lines like, uh, I can't believe I ate the whole thing, which I wrote for Alka-Seltzer, and try it. You'll like it. Uh, they're still remembered 50 years. Of 50 course years they later. are. They're like memes, actually, right? Practically, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I know you wrote a book about your auspicious career. So I wrote a book uh, titled I Can't Believe I Lived the Whole Thing based right. on my popular mm-hmm. line. And it's um, it's a, a story of my life in advertising and my life. But it's uh, uh, people tell me it's funny, it's clever, it's entertaining. It's not just about advertising. It's about the stuff we all go through in life and uh, very much uh, about my wife and me because she is very instrumental in everything that good that happened to me in my life. Yeah, I, I remember you said that. No, that, that's quite a lovely thing for a man to say about his wife. I know you had three kids together, right? Or you have a blended family. Uh, we had, she had a, my, one daughter before we met in her first marriage. And her name was Christina, is Christina. And she was six years old, I think, when we met. So we became an instant kind of family. And then we got married. And then we had our first child, Joanna. And then we had our second child together, uh, Jonathan. So Christina, Joanna, and Jonathan became our complete family. Mm-hmm. And then at one point, your wife suggested that you do something else that was going to be very big and important and also very disruptive. Well, everything was going along just fine. You know, we we had a nice house. We had three kids. We had a beautiful dog named Kelly. And, uh, you know, my approach to life is if things are good, don't mess with it. Carol happened to see some program about the need for foster parents on the west side of L.A. You know, and uh, that's still true, you know. It's really true. Is it? Yeah. This is going back to, I think it was around 1992. And uh, she said, no, I, I, I think we ought to get involved in this. Uh, I think we can be helpful. And I said, everything's so in place right now. You know, and that was my approach to life. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And she said, Howie, they need us. And the way she said it sort of got to me because I do, I, you know, I, I do care. <laughs> And I do want to do good things. I just need a push. And so that got the ball rolling. We uh, we met with the people at the Foster Parents Program on the West Side. And we started going through their program, which was uh, preparing us to be foster parents. And that involved all kinds of learning safety measures and life-saving measures. Yeah, it's a lot of work, right? There's a lot of training, a lot of classes. There's a lot of training, yeah. Mm. And, and you got to you know, pay attention. And uh, there's also a lot of emotional commitment. And learning how to accept uh, another person in your life, not just a person, but a child, a responsibility, and to embrace that, basically to learn how to fall in love uh, and ultimately to let that go. Because wow, foster parents is not permanent, you know. Right. A foster parent doesn't necessarily mean you're going to keep that kid. 
you're just making it safe. Yeah, it actually means you're not. It means you're not, right? Yeah. Because, you know, actually during that time we had talked about after we met Angelo and he'd been living with us for a while, uh, I wonder if we can adopt him. And the answer was no, because really what they want to do is rehabilitate the family, the broken parts of the family, and get things back in order and have the foster parents take care of the child until that's done, but then reunite the family. Right. So let me go back, though, to it. All right. So you so you had your training. You're ready to take a, a kid or kids or you're, you're ready to open your home. Did you feel that you were ready or did you just do what you needed to do and hope for the best? I felt we were ready. Uh, we didn't really know what it was going to be like. I don't think anybody can really know until it happens. Mm. But we were ready in terms of what we were supposed to learn and what we had studied up on and read up on, on what, what they say it's going to be like. Right, because they try to prepare you as much as they can. And then, uh, but once we were ready, there was no child just waiting to come into our home. And we said, okay, we did all this. Where's the child? And it, it just so happens. You know, it, it ebbs and flows. Sometimes there are many just waiting, and sometimes there were none. At that point, there were none. So we waited, I don't know, two, three weeks. And then all of a sudden, my wife called me one day, and she said, uh, we've got good news. There's a placement for us. And uh, I said, yes. I said, oh, great. Uh, do you have any idea what it's, what, who they are or who it is? And she said, well, actually, it's three African-American siblings, ages 5 to 11 or something like that. I said, three? <laughs> wow. We're starting off with three. So uh, she said, yes, they need us. That was the line, by the way. They need us. Yes, they need us. And so these uh, children came into our home, three adorable children, uh, but, uh, you know, children, rambunctious and competitive with each other and but needing help. And I, I say, you know, if you're going to bring one child into your home, it, it's a bit of a challenge. If you're going to bring two, it's uh, could be problematic. And if you bring three, it's crazy. It was, so it was, it was crazy, crazy, huh? It was crazy. It was, it was great. I mean, these were our first placements and we've got three kids in our home and, you know, you got to take care of them and feed them and bathe them and take them places. And, uh, but you know, also you're starting to like get a feeling in your heart for them. And they were really sweet kids. Fortunately for them, they had, uh, I think it was aunts, aunts, who could take them in. And so they stayed with us for probably less than a week and they were taken into their uh, relatives' homes, which was good for them. Did you ever find out what happened to them? Do you do you know anything about No, it? no, they don't tell you. Yeah, they don't tell you, right? It's like you're just you're pretty much in the dark about a lot of stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, you're there to help to the extent that you can help. I mean, I, I guess that's good in a way. It's there are a lot, I guess there are foster parents who want to help temporarily but don't want a permanent attachment. Privacy issues are very important. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't you don't want their family to know that much about you. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes some of those people in those families are not the most wholesome people. Yeah. So uh, it's better that way, I think. Right. So then you had other kids come into your house sometimes. Yeah. Over, over the course of the next, I don't know if it was maybe six months, we maybe had another six or seven what they call placements. And uh, I don't remember all of them. I do remember two boys in particular. One was Hispanic. He was adorable. He stayed with us for about a week or two. Uh, Arturo was his name. 
and we got along great. And we took him uh, on weekends. We went down to the beach, and he just had the best time. And he felt he felt safe and secure. And to the extent we could, uh, we made him feel loved. And after him, there was this boy, uh, what I call the, t- the typical American blonde, blue-eyed boy, you know, really cute, about eight or nine years old. And uh, you'd say, oh, this, this is like a Brady Bunch kind of kid. But we found out somehow that he came from a, a really terrible situation where his father was violent. And it actually, I don't know how to say this, say it, but his, his father had killed his brother beat him to death. Wow. That was terrifying. I don't know how much he knew about this. I think he did. Maybe he must he have seen some of it, probably, right? Or at least heard uh, it. Yeah, he must have seen the violence. Yeah. And yeah. yet he was a sweet kid. And, and we had him for uh, two, three weeks, I guess. And uh, on the day he was to leave, he looked up at us and in the sweet little voice, he said, I just want you to know I really appreciate what you did for me, and and I will always, you'll always be in my heart, and I'll always be grateful to you. This is from his childhood. So vulnerable, so beautiful, wonderful. Yeah, you know, um, what has struck me and some of the kids whom I've had on the podcast is that even as children, they often felt grateful that they were finally in a place that they were safe. Yes. I mean, it's, yes. it's so terrible to think that a little kid would have to have even that consideration. Yes. Yeah, and I, I would hope that's the way it is for most of them and most foster families. We know that they're not all they're not wonderful all. and no. savory, but uh, mm-hmm. I guess that was the reason Carol knew instinctively that we would be good for it because we, we love kids, first of all, and we, we love people, and we do like to help. You know, there's so many ways you can help in life. You know, we give to charity. We give money to causes that we believe in. But those are distant things. It's very, very personal to bring a person into your home and your life. And that's the experience most people don't have. But it it was a great thing. It was very rewarding. You know, when I tell people that I'm a CASA, they often say, oh, wow, so you... You take the kid into your home. Isn't that hard? That, and then to, I say, no, no, no. Actually, I don't. I don't bring any kids home. Uh, I don't think I could handle it. Actually, um, the work of Acasa is very specific. That mm-hmm. that they're they're on the periphery. They're they're doing the phone calls. They're doing the legwork. They're doing the research. They're not taking care of the kid and putting them to bed at night and making yeah. sure that they're. I, I have thought about it, but I. I don't think that I could do it. But anyway, so please t- tell me about Angelo. It's funny, then- when I talk to you, you seem like you could, you could easily do it. You seem very uh, empathetic and a little emotion there. You know, I come from a family of 10 children. Oh, wow. And I was the baby girl. I, I have a younger brother, but he, he acts like he's older than me. So I'm pretty much considered the baby girl. And <laughs> I ha- I don't have any kids. I, I never had kids. I never... I never met a man I wanted to have kids with. Mm-hmm. I, I always thought I'd have like six or eight or something, but then that just mm-hmm. ha- hasn't worked out. And but I love kids too. I I want to hang mm-hmm. with them. I I learn from them. I think they're really cool mm-hmm. shit. But yeah. the foster kids different because I I think I want to hang on to them. You know, and mm-hmm. I don't know if I could let that happen. But 
All right, but let, so anyway, so please, please tell me about Angelo because he came into your life and he rocked you, right? Angelo, uh, we call him, he, he was the one. Mm. <laughs> For some reason, he was the one. Uh, he was two and a half. He was really small with these big brown eyes, jet black hair, uh, Angelo Melendez. And he uh, came into our home and we just, we loved him instantly. It was not without problems. Uh, he came from a home of uh, his mother had three other boys by three other men. Wow. Uh, I don't, I think most of them didn't even know who their fathers were. I think one did, but Angelo didn't know, it, never met his father. And their mother, who was a sweet, she, um, I, I didn't meet her, but Carol did, met her one time. Uh, seemed like a very sweet, uh, very vulnerable lady. Obviously very troubled. She was into drugs and she died while he was in our care of a overdose. Wow. So he lost his mother. Uh, what he had, though, was his aunt, Mary, who was taking care of the other three brothers, two older, one younger. So ultimately, the goal is to unite Angelo with the family. And as uh, he, he stayed with us for a year, as the time went on, we kept getting more and more attached. We did look into uh, any possibility of adoption. Uh, there didn't seem to be that possibility, uh, especially since he had siblings and he had uh, a, a blood relative. And so um, we spent, a, I'd say, a, a very emotional year together. There were ups, there were downs, there were uh, the kinds of problems you have with your own children. Mm -hmm. And and how, how did your kids handle um, you welcoming other children? Uh, good question. Be because, you know, it's, it wasn't just Carol and me who had to embrace the child and bring him into our lives. It, Johanna and Jonathan were living at home and the whole family has to adjust to this and embrace the foster child. So early on, Jonathan was maybe 11 years old and uh, Angelo had been living with us for a few weeks and Jonathan came home one day, walked into the house. I saw there were tears in his eyes, walked through the house, through the backyard to the end of our property. And he was sobbing. And I said, Jonathan, what's the matter? And he said, I want my life back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it disrupts everything. You can have good, good things happen. Uh, he, he now had a little foster brother and there were good times. But there was, you know, it's like it's not his life the way it was. So. That was, I thought that was kind of adorable. But we all had to adjust uh, adjust to the situation together. I think Angelo uh, he had abandonment issues. I think people that, uh, like his mother dying, ultimately there were other people he cared about who died for whatever reason, illness, or who, who knows what, but he lost people who loved him. And I, I think that was very important to us. We wanted to be a constant in his life, uh, people that loved him and, and he could always count on to care for him. Right. So you stayed in touch with him? So he stayed for a year. And when he was about three and a half, he went to live with Aunt Mary and the three brothers. But yes, we always stayed in his life. Uh, I don't know if it was every week or a couple of times a month, we'd pick him up and take him to our home and do things with him. And we got to know Mary and we got to know the brothers, but we didn't spend a lot of time with them. And we'd help them out a little bit. You know, they were a little short on, on money when we try to help with money and food every now and then. So then Angelo was like living with them, but he was still had a foot in this life. 
And ours was, uh, fortunately for us, a, a fairly uh, comfortable Beverly Hills lifestyle. Right, with a pool and a nice cars. Uh, and... A house up in the canyons with a pool mm. and a view and you know, pretty cars and, you know, all the cliches you, when, you, when you think you're ready to make it. It's one of the reasons why I said, what do we need problems for? Uh, and yet this was something that was ultimately going to make our lives much more complete. But Angela would come and swim in the pool and be in the big house. And then he'd go back to uh, whatever was back there. And, you know, Mary had a boyfriend who was actually a good guy. And they were like uh, five people living in this very small space in a very un, you know, unhospitable neighborhood. I say unhospitable uh, by my standards, but it was a very uh, Hispanic neighborhood. And the people that they knew were Hispanic and they spoke Spanish and they were the same culture. We were not the same culture. Right. We were introducing them to a whole other way of life. And we didn't realize the extent to, uh, we didn't realize until much later when we talked about it when he was an adult, how it was confusing to him. Very conflicting, I'm sure, because he must have been very, very fond of you. And then he sees you for a little bit and then you take him home yeah. and you drop him off. Yeah. And is he, is he part of this life or is he part of that life? So we didn't know what was going on in his mind with that. Uh, he did actually come back to live with us for a short while so that he could go to Venice High. And we were living in Marina del Rey at that time. We had moved. And Venice High was not exactly the most wonderful place. There were always gangs and fights and stuff like that. So, but, you know, he, he's a strong kid. He's a smart kid. He's a sensitive kid. And I think ultimately what we can do is give him support, show him the love, try to give him guidance, talk to the extent that we did talk about issues that were going on in his life. And ultimately that contributes, I, I guess, in the same way that it does when you have your own child. You know, mm -hmm. There's no straight path to happiness and it's never all good. There are always issues like life, you know, you have to, you have to solve, you have to work out. Right. So how, how is Angelo now? What's his life like? Oh, we're so proud of him. You know, he's, uh, <laughs> you sound just, like a daddy talking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, he just turned 32 and he has two beautiful daughters of his own. One is I think 15 and the other is 11, something like that. One, uh, was by his girlfriend's First relationship is the older daughter. And then he and this woman had uh, their child. He never got married. And he loves them both like he's the genetic father. That's, mm. that's one of the reasons I'm so proud of him. And he's a, a very, very doting, loving father. He works very hard. He has, he's successful in his work. He's a manager at a, um, a seafood warehouse. It's a big deal. A lot of people. He's got a lot of people working under him. And he works a night shift. Hmm. Imagine working under fluorescent lights in a seafood place where the temperature's 20 degrees. Or, wow, yeah. That's yeah. not fun. But no. you know, he's good at it. He, he does, uh, he, he's actually come to like it. But then he'll go home to sleep during the day and pick up the kids and take them somewhere or pick them up, take them to school. And he doesn't miss his responsibilities to do that. He embraces them. Even though he's working all night long, yeah. Even though he's working his butt off, he's uh, also also working his butt off to be a great father because he loves them. And I, I think he has articulated to us that he he wanted to give them what he didn't have 
from a, a stable uh, family relationship. Yeah, and he, have you have you talked to him as an adult about his experience with you as a as in your family? Yeah, little bits here and there, but most recently, and this was I'm talking about maybe a few weeks ago. We were sitting out in the backyard of our house, and because he comes over, he brings the girls over to swim at least every couple of weeks. And sometimes we'll have dinner here and we talk. And this last time, uh, he started opening up quite a bit. You know, first he started talking about his thoughts about where he might go with his career. And there are like big opportunities. Uh, I, I probably shouldn't get into that. But he's very loyal to his career right now or his job. But he opened up and said, you know, I, I didn't know why you let me go. Oh, no. Why? Why didn't you keep me? And we were like kind of stunned by that because we thought it was clear and we, we were sure that we had talked about it. But who knows what was going through his head at that time. And the reason was that we weren't allowed to keep him. We had even inquired about it, but we weren't allowed to keep him. Uh, and we had signed agreements that we would, we would be foster parents, not adoptive parents. And we would have to let him go. But that we, uh, we always made sure that we would be in his life. And that, that part he knows for sure that, that we are and have been. Uh, but then he talked about what I was talking about before, the confusion of living two lives in the, uh, you know, the Hispanic part of town uh, with lesser means and the Beverly Hills side of town with lots of amenities. And uh, I could see where that could be very confusing. Yeah, especially because he probably didn't um, have the words to question it. Uh, you know, you're four, five, six years old, and you just accept what comes your way. You Even if you have a lot of questions about it, you might not necessarily say anything. Yeah, he also was a kid who tended to keep a lot inside. He would keep his emotions to himself. I don't know if it's that he felt shy about it or just didn't want to burden us with it or felt he... Uh, or maybe he didn't want to question it so he wouldn't lose it, you know? Yeah, good point, good point. So you, you mentioned earlier that you, surprisingly enough, this ended up making your lives more complete. Can you tell me a little bit about that? You know, the, the realization that you, this young, innocent life is coming into your life and is totally dependent on you. And it's a cute, adorable little Hispanic boy with big brown eyes and a shock of black hair and, and he looks up at you and uh, you just know that uh, he needs you and that that kind of sets the tone for the whole relationship that has lasted uh, 30 years right because he'll always be our little Angelo even though he's a big Angelo now with tat, with, with tats mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but he's still that little boy yeah he's uh, and he he comes to us for guidance and, you know, he'll pretend that, no, I don't really need this, but, uh, you know, uh, he does, you know, help with his uh, resumes and suggestions for uh, career paths. Right. But you would have been fine not doing this. Like, as you said, you want to do good. I mean, if you're given a little prompt, a little push, you're going to, you're going to end up doing the right thing. But it isn't like you, you didn't have this like great desire, this need to say, I need to do something that's going to take me out of my comfort zone and maybe make a really big difference in the world. But you did it. Yeah. And, yeah. and it ended up being really worth it. So what, what would you say to somebody who's thinking about it? 
Well, I think fortunately for me, I've got this wife who uh, I like to say has dragged me kicking and screaming to my own happiness <laughs> because she's the one who's always made the big suggestions for big changes and moves in our life. And I'm talking about everything from deciding ultimately after dating for a year to live together and then after living together to actually get married, to have uh, our first child, our second child, move to California. Every, every big move, I was like, Dr. No. Mm. Oh, what do we have to do? Everything's fine. And Carol had, a, for whatever reason, you know, she, she obviously has a big heart, but there were, these are things she felt were important and contributed to, a, a, I guess, a fuller, more loving life. And I, I don't know if I didn't think about it or didn't want it. I think I just needed somebody like her to really push me over the edge. I guess I could blame her if things didn't work out. <laughs> I so you just kept in your back pocket, like if this doesn't work, well, you you started <laughs> yeah, you, it, you brought you it up. You see what you made us do. Uh, but really, all those decisions were initiated by Carol, and I think that is who I am in my heart. I just need the push. And how do you do? You think it's made your children different? Do you think it's made their life better, or the well, what they want to do in oh, life? Yeah. yeah. Yes, I I think that. You know, the kids learn by watching their parents absorbing the lifestyle that we lead, not so much by us sitting down and telling them things. That's, I think, is artificial, although sometimes obviously it helps. But, but they know by watching. They know what's real and what's not real. They know what you like and they know what you are and who you are and also obviously the way that you relate to them. But they see the bigger picture of how you relate to the world and how you relate to friends and how you relate to responsibility. And so bringing this child uh, into our family, I think they could see that, you know, like me, it took them a while to say, why are we doing this? But then they got it, you know, and they love Angelo, too. And he loves them. They're like they are are like siblings. So I know that you have some challenges right now. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I, I see your shirt. You've got the. Eight, eight, eight stents. I would just say uh, I'm a medical marvel. Oh, okay. I, uh, yeah, on the heart disease, I have heart disease and I have eight stents. I created this t-shirt, Hollywood Stent Man. I'm going to ask for a picture of you in this t-shirt and that's going to be what I do for the social media posts. So you, you might end up, you might end up having people buy that t-shirt. So just, just okay. be aware of that. Okay. Sure. And what else? Uh, cancer. I, I'm actually a, a two-time cancer survivor, and I'm on my third. Wow. Um, the hat trick. It, I, this is going to be the lucky hat trick. Well, I like to think I'm a lucky guy. Something. I mean, how can you say you're lucky if you got cancer three times? But no, you're going to lick it three times. It. You're going to lick it three times. Yeah. 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 Well, I beat. Uh, I had stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma twenty years ago. And you beat that? Beat it. It's gone. I had stage three colon cancer six years ago, almost seven now. And I beat it until about a year and a half ago. Then it came back. So that's the third one I'm on. And uh, I've been treat going under treatments, various treatments for almost a year and a half. Not fun. But, you know, I, I've always had this attitude. I guess this relates back to uh, being a foster parent or what my personality is like. I'm kind of a Pollyanna. I just believe things are going to work out. Carol's the opposite, by the way. 
and we balance each other off. Carol is the sky is falling, doom and gloom, it's over. And I'm like, what are you talking about? The sun is shining. We live in a beautiful home. Life is great. Yeah, but it's going to turn. <laughs> Being a Pollyanna, I just believe I'm going to make it. And I think that kind of attitude definitely helps. I keep my sense of humor. I, I've always felt it's my job to make the nurses laugh and the doctors. <laughs> That's and the nice. more they laugh, the yeah. more they want, they want to be around me. And So anyway, where I am now is... Uh, on paper, didn't get better. It got worse. I'm now officially at stage four because it spread to my lungs. But since then, I'm on a whole new treatment regimen with new doctors at Cedar sinai And I feel, I feel good. I feel strong. I, I, think, uh, I think I'm beating it. I'm rooting for you, Howard. I'm, Thank you. I'm rooting for I'm you. I'm going to be around to be a pain in the ass for a long time. Okay. <laughs> So I'm going to ask you something I, I ask all my guests. I want you to see if you can think deep about this. <laughs> what is the one thing that no one would ever know about you unless you told them? One thing I can share with you is that I think I am who you see. I like to think of myself as a good person, a kind person. I, I really like people. Uh, and I like to make people feel good. When they feel good, I feel good. But I, I think I, I come across as a very, um, I'm a Libra, I'm balanced and calm. And I think the secret that most people w wouldn't know is that I tend to churn inside. And I'm much more competitive than I may come off. I grind my teeth at night. Okay, I would and, never have guessed this, that you got that yeah. fire inside you that you're... Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I could have really made it to the extent I did in the advertising business without that of, of really pushing and being very competitive in my own sweet way. Mm -hmm. Or maybe that's the ultimate way to be competitive. Maybe is it is. Don't you, let them know. No, you fooled everybody, right? Yeah. Yeah. That No, that's really good. That's good. Can you read to me what Angelo wrote to you on Father's Day? Well, this is what he posted on Facebook on Father's Day. Blessed to have one of the best male role models I could ever have hoped for. Thank you for all the guidance, those hard talks, the hard shoves, and most especially all the love you showered me with. May not have my blood, but we have the same heart. Couldn't have asked for a better dad. Oh, that's nice. I want to thank you for speaking with me today, Howie, and I oh, want to thank you. For, I want to thank you for the work that you and your family have done. It's really important. Well, that, uh, after being Doctor No, uh, it certainly was a, a joy for all of us. And uh, gosh, I hope more people do it because it's such a valuable, a valuable thing for the for the children, but also, I think, for the foster parents to do it. Oh, that's, that's really good to know. And I think you're right. Thank you. I think it's really interesting what Howie just said, that, yes, it's a really, really valuable thing to become a foster parent, not just for the kids, but for the people who do it. And that's been true across the board for the many people whom I've spoken with about what it means to be a foster parent, how it has changed them. It is extremely rewarding work, tough but extremely valuable. 
in many and different ways and has invariably made their lives better. So if you're thinking about it right now and you want to know more about becoming a foster parent, go find out about it. It might be right for you. And you'll be doing really important work, making a kid's life a little better. And they need you. They really do. If you see something, say something. If you suspect that a child's health or safety is jeopardized in any way by parents or anyone else, contact the Child Protective Services Agency in your county. 24-hour hotlines are staffed by trained social workers who will help you through the process, and you can do so anonymously. In California, you can call the Child Protection Hotline at 800-540-4000. So if you see something, say something. You might be saving a child's life. If you want to know more about becoming a CASA anywhere in the country, go to nationalcasagal.org. And in L.A., casala.org. And if you want to know more about becoming a foster parent, check out National Foster Parent Association at nfponline.org. There's also faithfosterfamilies.org and adoptuskids.org. There's a ton of other information online as well. Just hunt around. I want to thank the supremely talented Christina Apostolopoulos for her beautiful music, Eferisto. To hear more of her music, go to Spotify and Instagram at Christina Apostol. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-A-A-P-O-S-T-O. I know you want to. Her stuff is really great. And thanks to my audio producer extraordinaire, Marcos Campito. I'm glad I found you. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you hear, please rate us and hit subscribe. <laughs>